All right, this is Derek Harp, your host for the CSA podcast, and this is another edition of the Cybersecurity Leaders uh, Interviews. And if you've listened to some of these before, you know that our uh, goal is to introduce and showcase the stories of a variety of security leaders at all sorts of different parts of the industry. You know, and what decisions did they make? How did they end up where they are? Uh, what were the choices they made and what would they go back and tell themselves if they were, you know, were starting out? And we hope this is both useful to people who are making early career decisions or entering the workforce uh, at the beginning, all the way up to interesting to people who have been in the industry for a while and are just under uh, want to understand more of other people's stories. So um, it is my um, great pleasure to introduce today's guest, uh, Ernest Wonig, who has uh, had a variety of roles, which we'll talk about. But today he is the Senior Vice President of uh, CISO Advisory and CIP and ICS Services at System One. Welcome, Ernest. Thank you, Derek. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, uh, as I always like to say, uh, in my line of work, cybersecurity practitioners and leaders are uh, a kind of superhero, and all superheroes have a backstory. So let's uh, let's find out what Ernest's backstory is. So, um, where'd you grow up? Where where did all where did these things begin for you? I grew up in Southern Virginia, so rural background. Went to a rural school. Went graduated. Couldn't get out of there fast enough uh, to go to college. <laughs> So uh, now, now that I'm out, kind of think maybe I should take a little more time. Went to Virginia Tech as an undergrad, uh, went through ROTC, eventually went into the Air Force as a lieutenant, second lieutenant um, under intelligence to start. Um, did a, not quite a year of intelligence training uh, back when it was, I don't know if it's still, it may still be there, but in San Angelo, Texas. So went from kind of uh, middle of nowhere, Southern Virginia to middle of nowhere, uh, Central Texas, to be quite honest. So, um, it was a good time. You know, you put a bunch of uh, second lieutenants together in a, in a bunch of officer dorms and then cut them loose for eight hours, you know, train them eight hours a day and then cut them loose and you know, all kinds of interesting things happen. Uh, so anyway, but from there, I went, I got my first assignment to Shaw Air Force Base, uh, Central Air Force basically CENTCOM, where being a brash young lieutenant who couldn't keep his mouth shut, I kept telling my uh, colonel about this new book called, uh, not with a new book, actually, but this book I've been reading uh, called Third Wave, you know, the whole Alan Toffler period, uh, all of his books I was reading at the time, and about this, the fact that, you know, warfare was going to be uh, subsumed under this new thing called information uh, operations, and basically, uh Wound up briefing uh, General Jumper, who was the head of, of uh, Central Command, Central Air Force at the time. I think he eventually wound up being chief of staff, I remember correctly. But I got a, got a phone call, or I got a note from my colonel to report to him a few weeks later, at which point he, he handed a memo to me across the, uh, his desk and said, Congratulations, Lieutenant Wanik. You're now liaison to the first information warfare squadron. General Jumper decided he wanted an information warfare squadron, so we developed the first one for the Air Force. Back in, uh, in 90, 94, 95, I guess. Let me interject a question because that right there, that is the clearly the the beginning of a of your professional career path that involves cybersecurity. So if you go back, any exposure, uh, even going all the way back to before going to college, uh, you know, what was your exposure to technology, let alone security? And maybe you had some. Some do, some don't. That early. Yeah, my first computer was my dad brought home was a TI nine nine four A, and I think a massive. 16, you know, 16 kilobytes or something. I don't remember exactly, but yeah, some minuscule number programming in basic in high school. So I was a bit nerdy. Yes. Um, tech, I wound up 
changing from, I wanted to be an engineer, decided I didn't want to be an engineer, so I wound up actually going to political science, believe it or not, uh, because I was more interested, less, I mean, the technology fascinated me, but it was how people use the technology and how it, and at that point, thinking about how it impacts national security, you know, that sort of thing, was really what I was, was focused on. I am proof that you don't have to have a computer science or engineering degree in order to do cybersecurity. That is surfaced because that's a that's I think that's an important theme. People are saying, "Do I need to do this? Do I need to do that?" We get a lot of these questions from mark people who are entering the market, you know, coming out of the military or coming out of uh, uh, other other jobs, or they're they're you know wanting to transition into this into this space, and they're not sure exactly you know whether you have to have a certain kind of DNA to do that. No, I don't think so. It depends on the individual. Like I said, I, I've always had a now I have a natural inclination for technology, so on the side I still play with it, but. My it's sort of my formal education. First, the you know tech was a political science major. The Air Force, uh, you know, sent me to a year of intel training, so you get a lot of dealing with various technology capabilities and so forth, radar, electronic warfare, etc. Sure. Uh, my my graduate degree is actually in business. I have a master's in international business. So you know, with a technology focus, you know, on technology companies, but but in reality, you know, like I said, a lot of the my cyber expertise, if you will came either from the fact that on the job with the Air Force, like I said, I basically shoehorned myself into that position, which, you know, lucky for me, uh, or, you know, personal personal study, to be honest. Like I said, it's always fascinating to me. So, yeah, I mean, the certifications, you know, eventually you need them, but I'm much, you know, for when I'm looking at hiring people, for example, certifications are great, but I'm looking for someone with experience and drive. And someone who's interested in learning, someone who's going to learn, who's interested in learning, you know, seeing someone who's still, you know, taking classes. You know, I still take classes. You know, I just finished an MIT AI course. So um, because I wonder how AI's, I had this feeling, and it's, I think it's playing out, that AI is going to be big, both in our sector from cybersecurity perspective, but also in business in general. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that because I'm going to end with what you see coming ahead. So now I already know AI is going to be where we're going to go. That's one of the things we should talk about. All right. So you, so you, you, uh, so summarizing, you know, technological interest, but you're not pursuing it academically. You graduate uh, school and it's military introduces you to this confirmation of or combination of uh, information warfare, all the things that that started becoming part of that. So that's right. really where, where where it began for you. Certainly where cybersecurity, it sounds like, came into view was yeah, right there. Exactly. When I first came in, I mean, uh, as a lieutenant, my first position was head of what we call uh, CW, basically, communications, you know, analysis, basically, for, for Central Air Force. So it was, you know, technology technically focused in the communication sector. Telecom was big back then, which then grew to, okay, telecom to the internet to, Cyber, yeah, you know, exactly. So that kind of follows that path. My first, uh, my first real information warfare assessment activity, if you will, uh, was leading a team to do one for Ninth Air Force for their base. Yeah, you know, that was it. Was the first one that was ever done in the Air Force, looking at the telecommunication switching capabilities that you know for the base, because the again General Jumper was concerned about well, what happens if my comms go down? Because at the time we were playing with. That same, you know, those same ideas with adversaries. So now, are, is this because uh, this is another, you know, kind of juncture thing? I'm always looking for. Is this all traditional technology systems, not control related, building control based systems yet? 
I'm always uh, interested. Where does that intersect? Exactly. It started out at the sort of the technology piece or the telecommunications piece, but then we, we rapidly realized, and it was less of an issue there because there weren't as many, but in airbase, there are a number of control systems. You've got, you know, you've got petrol, you've got, you know, electricity all running out. You know, you can't generate aircraft stories without those. So there's control systems associated with both of those that have to be safeguarded or else basically you, you know, it's a golf course with airplanes sitting on the deck. Yeah. Uh, on the, on the flight it's pretty hard to do the mission if some of those things get disrupted. Yeah, exactly. When I was, uh, years later, when I went, when I was at uh, DIA, one of the big things we were looking at is learned about from the other end, someone coming after us, true cybersecurity, if you will, was potentially an adversary impacting military readiness. So, for example, there's a reason that Pope Air Force Base and the Army Base are right next to each other, in fair, in across the de- basically across the road from each other, in uh, what do you just call Vietnam? But anyway, Fayetteville, um, because those guys ready brigade, it's ready. They roll across the street to the transports and then they fly off. That's that's how you get them anywhere in the world in 24 to 48 hours. And that's that is considered a national uh, capability for the air for the United States. Well, if you do, you want to invade a country and you want to keep the U.S. from responding immediately, or if you're thinking about it, you don't want the U.S. potentially um, deploying troops because as soon as the U.S. deploys troops, then you've got to, you know, you start having to deal with that issue. It, it uh, kills your uh, your ability to move forward. So anyway, the, the fact is that one of the first assessments we were looking at then was not being able to generate aircraft because we can't get the airplanes. If you cut the power grid, all of the aircraft have to use um, portable generation in order to launch, and that screws up your entire sortie generation capability. And if you add to that, you're looking at integrated systems compromise. How, when is this? What year is this? This was about '99, actually. So that's for this problem space. That's that's the earliest that yeah, I mean, it was early. It was early on. Yeah. Yeah. It also, unfortunately, I also take it as somewhat uh, unfortunate because we're still trying to figure those those questions out. <laughs> but yeah, no, we were looking at uh, at that um, very early, and we, as I think I mentioned, we were looking at that in regards to specific adversaries that we sort of forgot about for about a decade and a half, and now we're becoming, you know, in the last five or six years, to become much more concerned about again. And the fact is, we were looking at those problems. Um, back when I was, you know, in, at DoD in the, the late late 90s, early 2000s, before I went off to the private sector. Okay, so you served for how long in the Air Force then? Uh, about seven years total. I did, uh, Appreciate that. Well, thank you. So yeah, I it was not an ex- it's an experience I wouldn't trade for the world, but uh, there were also some places they sent me that I really don't want to go back to. So. <laughs> I think everyone has experience. Yeah, I can say the same. Um, I, I was looking up your bio. I realized that we served on active duty about the same time. Now, I was in the Navy, uh, and I won't, you know, I won't say anything about denigrating any other services. You know, I don't do that. <laughs> During one of my tours, I actually spent some time on. Um, I think it was the Washington, uh, one of the carriers, at the GW. I'm pretty sure it was that one, and uh, they're impressive. Um, and a lot of capabilities that you don't necessarily, besides just moving airplanes on and off, right. a lot of other capabilities that are pretty impressive. So, yeah. Yep, absolutely. absolutely. All about joints. <laughs> yeah. So what happens after uh, after the service? 
after the service, I took a position at DIA for about a year and a half. So I was the lead, like I said, for uh, well, say I was the lead for analyst for China at the time, uh, from an information uh, workers or information operations standpoint. So that the focus there was on what are their capabilities, which were just beginning to blossom. You know, there's a number of you know the another number of of similarities now to what they were doing back then. It's an evolution. But a lot of things that come up in the press, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> so uh, that was a lot of fun. It's been a year and a half doing that. Again, it wasn't so much about the technology. I mean, there was the piece about the technology, what the capabilities were, and trying to understand that. But it was also about conveying it, stepping it down, if you will, to an operational for the, for the services or stepping it uh, down to a more strategic uh capability level to go up and, you know, if I had to go up and talk to Brief on the Hill or go talk to our, our uh, some ambassador going somewhere in the State Department who wanted to be aware of what situations were. So, again, going back to skill sets, skill set there was really about under, not being able necessarily to basically run a program if you were code. It was much more about explaining and taking it down to a an understandable level for a non-technical person, what those capabilities are and what they meant. Um, and I think that's what really a lot of our work now is needs to focus on for our CISOs because, you know, we can talk about that later, but CISOs to me are not technical. CISOs are executives. So a lot of exactly. what we do is translate. Yeah. I'm always looking for nuggets that, that are aha moments in these interviews. And I think this is one of those, which is, when people are, are thinking about their career path and where they want to go and, you know, should I, should I get more technical? Should I learn more about, you know, the following, you know, name your brand technologies. And you're, you just mentioned something sort of interesting around translation and being able to speak, you know, I'm implying a few things here, but you know, being able to speak business, that's not at all about the technology. It's about being a layer between, depending on if you want to look at upper you know, moving up into management roles in cybersecurity, it's it's not exactly about the technology anymore, is it? No, exactly. That's what I was, that's what I was saying. I firmly believe that, like I said, this, most of our systems come up to the technical ranks. Nothing wrong with that. The, the thing is that once you get up to, like, director or chief information security officer, you have to dial down the technical aspect and dial up the people aspect. Because at that point, you're trying to build alliances with other executives at, at the C-level. You're trying, you know, trying to persuade your peers, not just that what you're doing is important, but that they're going to fund it. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that once you get up to that level, it's about what is the what is security doing, not just as a cost factor, but what is it doing for the business? And you have to start weighing those risks. This is why when I was at AES, I had basically – monthly interactions with the chief risk officers officer and his people because we sort of we factored cybersecurity into that larger business risk piece because we had to. Um, the fact is that in understanding that impact, the potential and both the potential impact, not just the worst in the world issue or the end of the world issue, but also the day-to-day cost versus recovery piece to that um, is, is critical. The fact is, yeah, that is that was sort of an aha moment for me, if you will, an aha moment in terms of going it from DIA to 
civilian civilian world, if you will, when I left and went to work for consultancies. Um, Because there, you have to make that shift because basically, even though we call it IT consulting, in a lot of cases back then especially, it was still very heavy on the the management consulting into the the, uh, spectrum. Yep. And speaking of management consulting and, and consulting, uh, after DIA, where'd you go? Went to Booze. <laughs> Spent a, a lot, long time there. I was head of uh, cyber for the energy sector and the transportation sector, primarily, and a little bit more, uh, a little bit broader portfolio. Get that out. Had a little bit broader portfolio uh, later on, but um, there dealing uh, with. A lot of energy, like I said, um, some transportation, a little bit of environmental aspects. Uh, and that was also a sort of a broadening moment because it dealt with federal clients, if you will, some state, as well as looking at more uh, commercial uh, clients, so uh, especially utilities, which is where really my interest and skill sets, if you will, in regards to OT and, and ICS began to uh, develop. So and, be, and realizing that that was a key and critical part, like I said, we sort of understanding it broadly from the you know the defense side was one thing, but actually getting in and really understanding the technical aspects of you know utility, you know SCADA systems and control systems really was part of that. And growing that within Booz was Booz Allen was uh, a broadening aspect of my career, I think. Is that another um, somebody, let's say, earlier in their career path deciding, you know, going to work at an end use? If you, if you had to say, if I don't know all the details because no things, you know, no, no things are created equally. But I didn't know the details going to one of these uh, a firm like Booz that's going to be lots of different types of engagements, exposures. But you got a lot of utility exposure. It could have been other, could have been gas, oil, could have been a lot of things. Going to going to one type of end user, you know, where you're not going to get, you know, maybe you won't get all that same exposure, or going to a product company even, uh, and and not being at all, you know, in an end user environment. If you had your brothers and went back, would you say I'd still pick the same thing? Going to Booz was going to someone like that was a good move. Yeah, I think for me, I would. Now, you know, remember, Oscar, this was this was earlier on. So, yeah, when you said cybersecurity back, let's be honest, you know, be generous to me, 15 years ago. It I was, think it was still, information. I believe I started around around that information yeah. security. Cybersecurity. Yes. I don't think we were using that term. No, we didn't use that term until much later. But uh, and then there was the big. Or, then there was the the schism between is it one word or is it two words that went on for you know a decade I think. But um, when it was information assurance, information security, all, you know, all those things. But it was a much smaller sector. We you know we've. At, you know, as we've gone further and further, it's grown and subdivided and you know, broken off into different pieces. And you can specialize, you know, down to, you know, different types of code, you know, operating systems, even at this point, or you know, databases for that matter, or AI or, or, or other fields, cloud, for example. Back when, you know, when we started, it was just information operations or information assurance or information security. Everyone just said, okay, that's your designation. Go off and do things. And you kind of filled the bill no matter what. Now, um, I think you have a ability to, you, you know, my suggestion has always been to my teams uh, to when I mentor. Go out the first after you, you know, when you first get into the industry, whether it's coming directly from, you know, 
technical school certification or college, go out and get a broad breadth of experience. You can do that one or two ways. You can do that like, you know, going through booze type companies or EYs, uh, PWCs, you know, there's all of those. Yep. You, get, you know, you can travel between different engagements and maybe even different teams and kind of get an idea of what you like because, you know, you're, there are all these opportunities that require different aptitude, different skill sets, broaden the experience. Or the other option, like you said, is, which is a little more uh, a la carte, would be to, you know, go out, start at a technical company somewhere, does this, maybe a couple of years later, switch to something else until you find the niche, if you will, where you think you're, you're going to be happy. Now you're still going to continue to learn and develop, but maybe that's going up you know, my path, which took me much more along the management of people route, if you will, operations route, maybe the technical, maybe you're more on the technical route, but at least take the opportunity early in your career. Cause you know, early in your career, it's easy to recover from anything. If you suddenly decide, I don't like this. Okay, fine. You do a year and a half, you go no, and you go off somewhere else. Actually, I got that from the Air Force because the Air Force, you probably realize what they do with new recruits, with lieutenants, especially. Yep. Your lieutenant, go off and do that. That's what happened to me. I mean, I was originally sent off to be the political guy, and they're like, no, uh, actually, that job's already been filled. We're sent, giving you the C2 position. So command and control is yours. Oh, wait a second. Okay, well, fine. You want to do IW? You talk about that stuff? Here you go. You're now the, you know, you're now liaison to the IW squadron. You know, all that within you know, two years, I think, of, you know, depending on the bar well, after training, but three years depending on the bars. So, you know, Matt, you have that opportunity at, when you're uh, you know, just starting out. Take it. Yeah, it's it's popped in my head that we have more we have more professional development attack surfaces than ever as well. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> There's more things to apply yourself professionally to than ever before. There's certainly more attack surfaces for others, too, but. Well, and also the opportunities like, you know, like you say, in, in the industry, you have the, you know, when we were coming up, we were in. There were, there really were no mentors at that point because, yeah. you know, for the most part, you know, you may have a senior guy who was a telecom or senior guy who was a you know, network type. But from a security standpoint, there's a reason that most you'll find most of your security types are former Intel, former case, physical security, you know, back in the day, because, you know, it was basically how, how do we marry these two things together to, to get what we need? Yeah. Yeah. I know it, it, it's true. It's common. There's so many people with, with some DOD DNA in their, in their background that are in the industry today, especially at the more senior levels. Cause I think you're right. There's a sourcing that's an early adopter of cybersecurity. It's certainly where my first exposure to anything having to do with that was what were my military days. I, I had not had a path leading to that before then. And the Navy just said, hey, here, you know, start looking at some of this stuff. It was, it was crypto. It was, I was suddenly in charge of the, the crypto on my ship. I'm like, whoa, what is this? Communication security was uh, something I knew about in theory, but I had to learn real quickly about. So, but you mentioned something that I love to also ask about, mentorship, and whether anywhere along this path, then or now, anywhere really, how that has played out for you, both giving and receiving. Like I said, well, in the Air Force, you're you're constantly mentored by your senior officers. So uh, <laughs> you, you get it whether you want it or not there. But um, again, like I said, that, you know, that's great from a management career standpoint, less so from the, the technical aspects, because you know, there really was not a career path at that point for someone who wanted to do information operations or cyber or whatever you wanted to call it now uh, in the military. Now the military's done a good job 
I think in the last decade, it took a while of fixing that and creating specific career paths. They're still working on it. There's everything's got, you know, everything has works, but um, the fact is it's a lot better than, you know, it was when, when we were coming up. As far as later on, like, for example, Booz Allen, Booz Allen, the fact is, you know, again, there was a focus on development. And basically what I encouraged my people to have was a technical mentor and a, what we call a career development mentor, basically the person about that discussed how they grew up through the firm. Because you needed both. You still need both, I think. You need someone who's above you capability-wise and understanding of either either from experience or, or whatever, uh, who understands the, the technology probably to a deeper level than you do, or at least understands where it came from, perhaps. they may, You may have better, more current information, but they've seen the, the history. And then the same thing on the, on the, uh, the corporate side, if you will, because like I said, the fact is at some point you're going to have to make a decision and it's not necessarily a CISO, it's really a manager of where you're going to go. And if you're going to take that path, you can become the subject matter expert if you want to do that. And that's where, you know, if your inclination is, I want to be with the technology, I love the technology, then I, I wholeheartedly engage that we need people who do that. But if you're thinking in, you know, 10 years, I really don't want to be a coder or I don't really want to be dealing with uh, the technical aspects of, of building the building an architecture, then you need to start thinking about, okay, how do I manage people? Most importantly, how do I manage the type of people that I work with? Because, you know, in fact, technology people, for the most part, not all, but a lot are more inward focused to a, to a large degree than what you'll see in the general business operations environment. Yeah. You know, uh, engineers, uh, computer science majors, all of those people tend to be very technical based, very, very detail based. And, you know, they have an idea, they want to draw a path and they, they want to do their work, which is great. Sometimes it can hamper one's career, though, if you don't grow or pay attention to the people skills. And as a manager, that's really part of what your job, I think, is, is to help people understand that, okay, if you want to be the subject matter expert, you don't want to do the management path, great. But you're still going to have to probably lead teams, you know, in some way or integrate with other uh, organizations for projects. So you're still going to want to help develop the, the people and management, at least some management skills in those cases. Okay. Okay. So I think this is a, this is another one of those nuggets. Somebody, uh, let's say somebody recognizes what you were just talking about. They recognize that they're, they're in kind of a more of a technical tech, technical background, maybe both. And they want to develop some of these other skills, uh, whether you call them soft skills that some people do, but just people skills, leadership skills, you know, the planning, the other stuff, the non-technical stuff, where are some ways, what are some ways they might do that if their own manager's not not serving up that opportunity to them? Right. So, I mean, there's a couple of different paths to gaining some of those skills, I think. Um, one is reaching outside of your team corporately, inside the, inside the company. Look for people you who are successful, you respect, or, you know, seem to be doing well and just, you know, take, you know, say, can I buy you a cup of coffee? I really would like to, you know, ask you a few questions about uh, how you you manage the group, your group or what you're seeing in regards to the, the culture of the organization and how um, I can learn how to engage with it. 
Um, the other, as you become a little more senior, you know, get up to manager and so forth, you really should be reaching out to TCA or, you know, from an organizational standpoint, obviously these podcasts, the fact that LinkedIn is a great resource of understanding your peers are, your peers, and then, you know, people who are, who are coming up as well as people who have, uh, you know, gone up to higher levels or at higher levels than where you are right now. Never fear reaching out to someone. The worst they can say is, sorry, I'm busy. I really can't. Yeah. In most cases, they're going to be flattered. I mean, that's how most people get me. They basically say, um, yeah, I'd like to uh, pick, you know, pick your brain a little bit. Can we uh, go out the coffee? Well, I guess, I guess we'll do Zoom or, uh, or uh, WebEx right now. Um, but most people are going to be flattered in some way, the fact that you're going to do that. Again, understand, be, be uh, conscious of your time because most of them are probably, like you, busy. But there are a number of mechanisms that we didn't have. You know, it used to be you had to go to an industry conference and maybe you met someone or you went to a happy hour or whatever, and you still do, those are still viable. But LinkedIn is such an easy means of basically figuring out who's in the industry, who's doing a job I want to do. I mean, that's the thing to think about is, oh, wait a second, they're, they're senior manager of, you know, yeah, incident management, for example, or they're managing uh, a team that's doing, uh, you know, identity access. I'm interested in those. So, you know, just reach out and talk, you know, and ask. Most people, like I said, the worst you can say is I'm kind of busy. I can't. Most of them are going to be happy to, uh, um, you know, kind of come in and say, uh, yeah, I'd love to be able to, to help the new a new information. Yeah. So one of the great resources I think everyone has now is LinkedIn because, um, you know, and there's other networking tools as well. There's all of these applications, for example, you know, once the corona issue is, is dealt with, that you can either communicate directly with someone or, you know, they're actually match peer-to-peer uh, for people who are interested or having you know, both inside their own sectors as well as outside. I've done a few uh, groups like that uh, where, you know, you have sector groups within industries and so forth that get together for happy hours or to do learning events. But even on special LinkedIn, find someone, you know, who has a title that applies to where you think you want to go, you know, director of, of information uh, or incident response you know, senior manager for, for identity management, you know, deputy program to manage, manager, whatever. And basically link out and, and or send a link um, and request that uh, maybe I can take you to coffee or maybe we can uh, have a conversation. I'm interested in what you do and getting a better idea of how I can sort of design my path up to do a job similar to yours. Um, like I said, in most cases, the worst thing says no because they're busy. In most cases, they'll be very flattered and, you know, more than happy to do it. And that could be a one-off sort of mentoring session or you never know, it can develop into a much longer term one. And in most cases, I recommend that people try to engage those for, you know, those long, my team, I try to get them engaged more longer term um, so that because you can learn a lot from, from people who've been in a position that you want to get into or who have done a, worked up through uh, the, the corporate side doing uh, different things, but have a better, under- have a good understanding of how the business operates. I have to totally agree with everything you just shared. I, I it echoes my own, my own experience pre-LinkedIn. And then I've been an early user of LinkedIn, lived in California when that was, you know, coming, coming uh, into being, I was an early adopter of it. 
but in whether it's online or in person, in general, people are pleased uh, with that request. It's you're not always going to get a yes. You're not always going to be able to get the response you want. However, being thoughtful, uh, being creative, sometimes uh, in how you approach somebody. Old school, if people written letters are more powerful than they ever were. I mean, back when they were the only choice, they were you know they were powerful. But they've become retro in our lifetime um, because people get a million emails, and so you might not get a response from an email. Uh, but you could get a response from, uh, you know, by, by being something else. If you wrote a paper, you could include the paper. You know, you can differentiate yourself from just, hey, I'm just knocking on the door hoping you'll talk to me. Be thoughtful about your approach. Be, uh, you know, give it some, uh, you know, give it some effort. And you'll, you'll be, I would say, you'll be totally surprised what the yield will be and people willing to share time, time precious time, frankly, which is a commodity uh, for anybody. Um, but certainly people at senior management levels, uh, if that's what you're shooting for or aspiring to. And uh, so I, I like that. It's, it's practical advice. It's very real. And a lot of people don't even try it because they're not even sure that, you know, they don't believe they would necessarily work. But in right. fact, you, you know, it could work. Um, one thing I will say just to close the book end on that is make sure it's very clear that you're reaching out for that purpose. Because I know I get dozens of, of LinkedIn, you know, requests for connection that are associated much more with I want to sell you something or, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, maybe your company could use this service, um, which yeah. you know, sometimes it can, but a lot of times those are, let's just say, not closely uh, reviewed. So make sure that you're very clear about, yeah, I'm really interested from a mentoring perspective and understanding how you can be you know, successful. And, you know, a little butter doesn't hurt. Uh, a little butter and milk for people doesn't hurt. And, you know, basically make that very clear at the beginning that you're looking to understand how they, you know, they got to where they are um, and both from a professional and even to certain to the personal side, like yeah. we've been talking about here. Yeah, for sure. Uh, let's, uh, let's do a quick summary. Uh, Booz Allen, you then went to system one, which you went to system one and now you're back at system one. So right. just quick, maybe a quick chronological system one, what happens next? And then, then you're back there today. Yeah. System went uh, went to System One, um, went and took uh, kind of a dream job for me, which was a deputy CISO for uh, AES Corporation, so basically a you know Fortune 200 multinational energy company. So got to uh, got to wrangle cats across uh, the 18 different countries, <laughs> which is which is always uh, was quite interesting. Um, the nice thing about that was owning the problem. It's one of the great aspects of that kind of job is that you know, as a consultant, you know, we help our clients, we advise our clients, but our clients can basically tell us, that's great, but you know what, I'm going to do this, which happens occasionally, um, which is fine. Um, but the fact is that when you're in a, you know, in a man- you know, director's position or CISO position, it is your problem. You are managing it. You're running the ship. So that's one of the great things about those type of positions. I uh, did that for a while. Uh, and decided it was time. Well, a couple of things happened in my in the life that just resulted in me needing to go to Europe. My wife was there, uh, took a position. Um, so I followed her. It was, you know, basically it was her turn to, to uh, you know, to do the development thing. And I told her we, you know, we we said basically okay, we'll kind of go back and forth. So we're one of those type of couples. And I spent uh, about not quite a year in Frankfurt. Um, while she was the, at the at the European Central Bank, uh, basically did a little little side consulting uh, 
working on a book that I still haven't finished, but we'll get to that. Did some stuff with you, obviously. Uh, did some speaking engagements uh, in Berlin and a few other places, and uh, then came back stateside. Uh, basically, uh, my boss, uh, John Ablis, who's a CEO, founder of System One, said, really would like you to come back. You know, if, you, if you've gotten that whole travel and, you know, wanderlust out of your system, let's, you know, let's talk. So basically came back and did that. Uh, I've been doing that for about two years, over two years now, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, so, yeah. There's your story arc. I'm sorry? There's your story arc. And, yeah. uh, and you're back back in uh, in Northern Virginia where, you know, where, where it all began or where most of it did. Exactly. And, you know, got, you know, that family's back here. So we're, uh, you know, we're building our, our, what will be our weekend and eventually our retirement house out of, you know, you know, in Shenandoah Valley. So that's my hobby right now is basically overseeing construction of a, of a house. Um, but, but uh, you know, it's, it's a good time. It, unfortunately, everything going on right now in regards to the, you know, Corona has put a, a damper on a lot of things for a lot of people. So I understand that um, we've been lucky the fact that we have a blend of commercial and federal. So most, you know, we've been able to sort of shift things. So we've been able to keep our people, you know, employed and, uh, which is, you know, a blessing. Yeah, absolutely. In this, in this time period, that is. Well, let's um, transport ourselves back to, uh, back to maybe, uh, maybe when you're leaving, you know, leaving the military, but early in your career, any, anything you would, uh, would tell your younger self um, based on that, you know, that career path that you went, you just, you know, described going through, what would you go back and tell yourself? Probably, I'll be quite honest, if I had was telling myself, if tell myself one thing, I would have left Booz sooner. I think that that position, the position, I, the series of positions I was in were great, but for what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go, I probably should have jumped a little sooner back then. You know, it's a little more liberating later on when you realize, yeah, I could have done a number of different things versus, you know, being in the in the box at the time. Yeah. Um, that's why I would say to, you know, the individuals that you were talking about earlier, people who are a little early, early to mid-career, once these times pass in regards to what we're dealing with right now, don't be afraid to, you know, I'm not saying job hop every year, but don't be afraid to go, you know what, I, I think I want to take time and go do something else, not necessarily within this box. Or I've decided, you know what, I want to change my focus career-wise. So there, now that our industry has grown so large, there are just so many opportunities to do just that. And uh, or, like I said, to go more into an operational environment with some of our, you know, with, with businesses, there's an opportunity to do a number of different uh, different positions. Um, I would say even if you're putting the consulting side, but talking about business being in an actual business, take time, take a stint and go, you know what? I'm going to walk away from cyber for a year or two and I'm going to go do, you know, risks, corporate risk or business risk, or I'm going to go take a more technical, manage a technical team in operations, or I'm going to do something else in procurement, for example. All those things have a cyber touch to them, yeah. but you will get the opportunity to go out and see how the business operates. And that's key because if, as you progress through your cyber career, you know, we, we always talk in the, you know, the military, we talk about career broadening tours and, you know, that's what my wife was actually doing when she went off to, to Europe. 
that uh, when we went, that gives you an opportunity to get a better understanding of how the business or the industry works. And that's only going to make you a better practitioner, a cybersecurity practitioner or a cyber executive later on. Because the key is going to be when you're a director, when you're CISO, assuming that's where you want to go, understanding how what you do benefits the company and what it's trying to do. How, you know, for example, for utilities, okay, how do we make, you know, how do we make uh, electricity better, safer? How do we assure it's getting out um, more with lower risk? How do those things impact the bottom line of the business? Manufacturing, same thing. How are we improving manufacturing? Not just making more secure, but ensuring less downtime, ensuring that we've got less uh, probability of losing intellectual property. All those kind of things that you need to uh, be able to communicate. That's the other thing is you need to be able to communicate those successes. All the time I see teams that are doing great work, but they don't communicate it successfully to the broader business. And then you get the questions, well, what is that team? What is your team doing? And then when, unfortunately, if you're not communicating those successes, what happens, especially if you're a CISO, if the only time the CEO sees you is when something goes wrong, you're not doing your job properly. Got to be up there in front saying, yes, sir, we did this. You know, um, we're deploying this capability because not only is it going to make, you know, security better, but it's also going to mean that, for example, remote work. Um, that is going to be key going forward, even after all this is over with. There's just no way it's not going to be a big play in op- most business operations. Security. Yep. If you can say, yes, we're enabling remote operations or remote work or capabilities to do remote management of even uh, control systems, for example, that's going to make a big success. You need to be able to say, that's what we're doing. Because then when you come back later and say, by the way, I also need you know, a 10% increase in the budget or 15% or whatever, they go, okay, yeah, I understand. You guys are contributing. I understand from a business perspective what you're doing. It's not just you're lowering risk here uh, in the abstract, but I can actually see dollars in regards to what you're doing, or I can see increased operational capabilities but based on what you're you're providing. And that's key to main base, both, excuse me, that is key to increasing the amount of influence you have with the credit you can sort of chips you can burn when you have to tell someone no, or you tell them we can't do it that way. They understand, well, you're not just saying no for no, or you're not saying we can't do that that way for this, just to say that you are saying that because you understand the business. You're under, you're in that you've done things over the course of your tenure in that position that have benefited the business. So you un- they know that you're part of the team, the broader team in terms of the, the business or in terms of government, the, the mission operations of departments or agencies. Yeah. So I ran long. <laughs> no, no, but it's, 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 it's good advice. Um, I think let's end on a little future gazing and you gave a little hint earlier of what you're interested in. You know, what do you see ahead? What excites you? What are you looking at? We'll start with the, the less, less uh, sexy, which is uh, remote. Um, I think we're going to have to secure re- uh, remote operations infrastructure in a big way that we haven't really thought about until now, um, because even after this sort of breaks and we start seeing uh, spin back up in the economy, I think a lot of our, our business leaders are going to realize, well, why am I paying X number of dollars per square foot of office when, you know, 
Joe or Jill or, you know, Lee can work from home just as effectively and maybe come into the office once a week or twice a week. And that also helps me main, ensure that I'm maintaining, you know, social distancing requirements and all that. Reduce both the business cost footprint from a, in terms of uh, uh, real estate as well as the risk footprint, health risk footprint. Same thing for operations in return, regards to OT and control systems. Uh, one of the big issues, it, this actually came up four or five years ago when I was at AES. I was doing a, uh, had a team, we were doing a review of one of our power, power uh, plants in uh, Ireland. And, you know, basically the operators were saying, well, why can't we do remote? At that time, we didn't have the capability, you know, to do it well. Let's just put it that way. We weren't yeah. going to put, we weren't going to put most of Northern Ireland at risk by saying that, uh, Ian can work from home. Um, but now the fact is there are capabilities out there in terms of remote sandboxes, VPNs, two-factor or encrypted or uh, tokens, excuse me, that in most cases, those are now bundled in such a way that you can buy one solution and be able to, to run operations fairly effectively remotely, remotely for a number of jobs. Uh, so I expect that to be a big factor, and cloud only enables that. So you know, as cloud continues to grow and eat everyone, everyone's data centers, that's just the way it's going to be. Uh, even within the environment of the of uh, electrical generation, um, one of the organizations that uh, projects that was basically bought by one of the companies I I worked with. Uh, for solar, for example, all of their control systems were run over the web, you know, and basically they're run through, you know, through VPNs, through sandboxes, utilizing cloud cloud uh, operations and storage. So that's only going to become a bigger issue. I remember that a couple of years ago, um, you know, there was a big question in regards to whether cloud would ever be compatible with NERC SIP. You know, we had, I remember sitting in meetings and online having arguments for hours on that. And eventually, we basically finally realized, yeah, we can do that. Some people still don't necessarily like it, but it's pretty much accepted in that practice. Now, more sexy aspect I'm looking at, I think we, we talked about is, you know, um, artificial intelligence. And that is going to, between machine learning and natural language processing, um, neural AI, all of those we're seeing both on the operations side of the house in terms of business operations expanding. And you know, there's a lot of hype on certain things about AI, but um, once you peel away that, there's still a lot of value and benefit coming from applying AI and automation into business operations, whether that, that be manufacturing operations technology for utilities or even, um, even certain aspects of retail. Um, and finance, finance, whether anyone believes, whether we realize it or not, finance has been, you know, on, on this particular train for several years already. The fact is we have to start working on how, what architectures we're going to use to secure AI from both the standpoint of how do we secure AI that we're using inside the business? How do we secure the business architecture? Because we basically, with AI, in some cases, you've got something that's learning. It's like a toddler. Basically, you don't necessarily know exactly all the things it's going to do. So how do you sort of keep it contained 
in the what you're trying to you know so that it doesn't start spilling over into other you know other parts of your network or potentially other parts of your your operations through unintended consequences that's all the you know how do we work successfully with it and, and secure our networks with AI then there's quite honestly we see it every the evolution of threat has always been you know the stuff that we used to worry about you know when you and I first came on board you know DDoS and you know stuff like that are now child's play. You know, any any script hacker can go online and buy uh, you know, a botnet if they want now. So those those capabilities that we used to associate with like nation states, you know, even a decade ago are now prevalent across the, the net. AI is going to be the same thing. And you know, if you think you know Joe sitting in his garage, you know, in his um, his garage or in his basement, pounding away, you know, till two o'clock in the morning on some network is a problem. Imagine when Joe has an AI bot that basically can learn and adapt as it basically does that same thing mm-hmm. and we'll do it faster and we'll do it much more efficiently. You know, some of those capabilities are already, I, you know, I suspect are in the pipeline, if not already in certain nation state um, arsenals. You've got that capability. Now we have to, you know, AI is our biggest problem is going to be AI, but at the same time, probably our biggest savior is going to be AI because you're going to have to have an, you're going to have to have artificial intelligence to fight artificial intelligence when it's all over. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the positive part of what you're talking about. I mean, obviously, that paints a picture of some uh, of some negative aspects of the future. But the positive spin is there's a lot of opportunity there. And so if people are, are looking at, you know, even if they're not, you know, entry level, even anywhere in the career path, they're like, Ooh, where can I go where there's going to be really cutting edge stuff being done? This is one of those areas. Absolutely. And like I think I told you earlier, um, that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm very, I've always been interested in that particular aspect of technology, but I think we find, you know, it was always sort of that technology of today, technology of tomorrow issue with AI. And I think we finally got into a place where AI, especially, you know, for autonomous vehicles, um, the things we were just talking about, we've gotten to that point where suddenly there's fruition um, where, you know, we can act, we're seeing stuff actually come out into the economy, into business, into the, the culture even. You know, that's going to be it's going to be exciting. It's going to be scary, but it's going to be both. Um, and it's going to definitely be job security for a lot of people who can uh, kind of bridge that again, bridging that gap, a connection between two technologies. And, if they, you know, one of the things I don't remember where I read it but years ago, the fact is most innovation comes from that crossing that gap between two different technologies. You know, cyber and AI right now is, I think, one of those key nodes, nexuses that's going to be next. I think it was just before or after our conversation in Berlin, you know, our panel in Berlin, I was, I gave a briefing on that same subject at, uh, at an AI conference in Berlin. I think it was a few months after. But yeah, so I mean, back then, it, you know, this was, you know, a couple of years ago, it was still new. Um, now I think we're getting to the point where it's cresting. So if you want to get in, this is time to think about it because um, pretty soon you're going to start seeing more and more people interested in more and more competition in that space, I think, really going forward. And if you're a technical type, it's absolutely the best place because I mean you're still dealing with you know how do we manage programming and you know to you know actually to you know program R plus and how do we manage the integration of that with larger operational pieces. In some cases, you're building you know modular bots, if you will, and adding them together to, together to get to some some place, or you're trying to capture what they call what we're calling data lakes now, you know, and process those raw. You know, as opposed to having to 
design and implement index all that that data, you basically just dump it all into whatever AI um, piece you've built and let it chew on it for, you know, for however long it takes. In the lake, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You take the AI bot and throw it into the lake and basically you come back in a couple of days or less and it's drank the whole lake. So um, the nice thing is then then it gives you ice cubes that you can go, okay, I want that one, I want that one, I want that one. And, you know, in some cases you find, you'll find stuff that, you know, we would never find. So, I mean, from a financial, I uh, took a course with MIT um, on business strategy and AI. And one of the things I was, two projects I did, one dealing with AI and how it's going to augment, say, generation in terms of automation and and, uh, both things like autonomous support to things like robotics in within the the generation uh, facilities, but also managing potentially day-to-day operations even more so than than now, uh, you know, so kind of not removing the operator, but bringing them up to a higher level. And, but also from a business standpoint, say financials, you know, one of the things I had, we had when I was a couple, most of my multinationals, they, they basically say, well, we really don't know what's all in there because we've got all of this, all of this data. We've gone through different, um, you know, changes in regards to which databases we were using, you providers were using in some cases things got moved from Oracle to SP, SAP to SAP to Oracle. Um, we dumped stuff from here to there, and they've got terabytes of financial data that they really don't necessarily have a full concept of. Whereas you could basically process that through artificial intelligence in a short time frame and, and find all kinds of nuggets. Now the downside to that is if you can do that, so can the adversary. So if I want to find out what's going on with your business, maybe sometime around 2, 2 a.m. in the morning, a bot shows up through prior compromise and we go through the whole chain there. But and suddenly I'm processing all of your 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 financial data prior, you know, a couple of days prior to your uh, your 10 caps or your your financial reporting to the market. So you know, suddenly stocks shift and all that kind of stuff becomes possible. Or, you know, if you're really bad and really evil, you basically just plant a few things in there. But that's a whole different issue. You know, AI makes a lot a lot of that stuff more feasible than it used to be, let's put it that way. I think there's a there's a Star Wars analogy in of the dark side of these things and the <laughs> Exactly. There's very much <laughs> or you know, if you're a Star Trek guy like me, you go back to the mirror universe. So you've got Good Kirk and bad Kirk. So, yeah. Or, yeah. You know, that's exactly the case. And, you know, I th- unfortunately, what generally happens is it's always offense that, that's leading and defense that's following. So we're just starting right now. And I'm not sure we can afford to have that parameter play out because it could get so far ahead that we just don't catch up. And that's that's a big, big concern I have right now. So. If you're interested, that's the place. I think that's the that's the uh, the nexus to go for. Well, awesome! Uh, You know, uh, future of challenge and opportunity all mixed together. Okay, now we're at my favorite part of any of these interviews, where I get to uh, tip my hat to one of my favorite shows, Inside the Actor's Studio. It was hosted by James Lipton for many, many, many years. He passed, unfortunately, in recent years. Uh, But the show, I understand, is still going on, and he borrowed 
uh, something in his show uh, that was called the Pivot Questionnaire from a French show. And so it had been used even before that. So this goes a long way back. And so if you're ready for uh, for this to uh, finish our show together, I'll ask you the Pivot Questionnaire. Let's go. Okay. All right. What is your favorite word? Merriment. Good word. What is your least favorite word? No. What turns you on creatively or spiritually or emotionally? I'm kind of a grazer. So um, I love reading. I love, you know, like I said, I don't have a science degree, but I love science and technology. So, you know, I'm very happy, you know, going through science journals or, you know, pulling up science, you know, things and uh, learning a lot about different things. So that jack of uh, all trades, master of none, if you will. All right. Uh, what turns you off? Rudeness. What is your favorite curse word, if you have one or are willing to share? <laughs> I really don't have a favorite. I'll be quite honest on that one. Well, I'm just going off the original questionnaire, so that's, that's good. What sound or noise do you love? I love the sound of water in a creek. What sound or noise do you hate? The sound that uh, an overwrought drill makes when someone tries to screw that, that last screw in way too far. <laughs> What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Uh, astronaut. I always wanted to be an astronaut. So, uh, you know, if Musk needs uh, someone to do cyber programs for, uh, the, you know, for the moon base or Mars, I'm happy to, to apply. What profession would you like to not do? Not a big fan of uh, pumping uh, sewage tanks. And if you're done, don't, don't, really, don't really want to experience it. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Welcome. There's bourbon. And all of the uh, scientists and literary guys are over to your left. <laughs> That's one of the best answers yet. I love it. Thank you, Ernest Woning, Senior Vice President of CISO Advisory at SIP and ICS Services at System One. Thanks, Terry. 